I'd like to introduce Mark Fisher, who hardly needs introduction, since Mark is a friend, patron, and general help to the Ledbury Poetry Festival. He inaugurated the first poetry festival when he was Minister of Culture. Mark's going to take over my introduction, so all of my notes are actually a waste of time. Um, so over to you, Mark. Right. Thank you very much, and thank you all for coming. Uh, uh, I had visions that you would all be celebrating England's victory, and we would have played to an empty house, but uh, it's wonderful that you're here. Um, can you hear me all right? Is that okay? Um, I should say a little bit about uh, the background to today's meeting, because um, many of you will know that Juliet Stevenson and I have done a, 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 an event every year with a woman poet, uh, people like Elizabeth Bishop and Elizabeth Barrett Browning and Sylvia Plath. And um, Juliet wanted to do um, a male poet this year. Uh, but sadly, she uh, has not been able to uh, do it. She's um, the, the main bread earner in her family, and she's got a wonderful husband called Hugh Brady, mm -hmm. and uh, um, he's an anthropologist, and, and she has been working in the theatre all winter and uh, earning, for a wonderful actress as such as she, um, pitiful money. And so she needed terribly this summer to earn some serious money to keep their family going, and uh, so she's done some telly. But... Uh, um, Michael has stepped into the breach uh, wonderfully, and I'm extremely grateful to him. He and I were at Cambridge together. Uh, he, I should add, slightly ahead of me, but we were both, both at Trinity Cambridge and read English. Um, and I should explain that this Don Colonia figure <laughs> on my right... <coughs> Or, or is it Marlon Brando? Um, no, it's Bob Dylan at the age of 18. <laughs> <laughs> um, is because Michael, earlier in the year, has had a, a appalling uh, uh, eye problems. He's a, a corneal abrasion, uh, abrasion of his cornea, and he can't see anything. He can't read anything. Um, and it's wonderful that, in spite of that, he's agreed to come today, and he's going to do Desert Island Poems tomorrow. But we are very lucky because we have Prue Skeen, his wife, who is, I'm sure many of you know, I mean, we all owe huge thanks to because what she created at the, uh, with, the, with the lottery money for, for, for the arts was, is enormous. And uh, um, so we are in her debt even before we start today. But she's going to read for Michael. But Michael, I don't think, will be hesitant about commenting on, <laughs> on Blake. Um, did you do Blake at Cambridge? No, not? not. It was one of the great gaps in the English tripos. There were, were many in those days. Me too. And I don't know what the feeling about him would have been because my abiding memory of, of doing the normal English literature path at Cambridge, and I, like you, was obsessed with being an actor at that time. And obviously remained so. Some rather more successful than others. <laughs> I was a hopeless actor, but Michael was always very good. <laughs> the gulf, though, between the study of drama, for example, and there is a point to the story, 
um, with one's tutor or one's supervisor was very different from the practice. And it's when I first encountered this enormous division whereby the academics would be saying, well, you know, death of a salesman is an important work of literature because this, that, and the other. And I'm saying, well, it has a good fourth act, you know, because <laughs> my interest was always practical. Um, and I was always curious about William Blake, but I'm not sure he made it onto the syllabus, really, because he wouldn't have been thought, perhaps, a sufficiently serious poet, given he did other things like making plates and being an engraver. Would that be right? Well, it certainly was my experience. So yes. he certainly, would, he, I don't think he ever did an essay on, on, uh, on Blake. Yeah. Um, though we were both taught by F.R. Levis. Um, I wasn't taught by him. Would you? No, I went to a couple of his last uh, 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 lectures and couldn't hear once, them at all. Once he, <laughs> once he got thrown out of the department, do you uh, remember he used yeah. to have weekly sessions in his rooms in Downing, yes. where we all sat on the floor, uh, and he ranted. I mean, uh, didn't learn very much, but it was you knew it was a great experience, this great, yeah. wonderful man. Yeah. Um, and I don't, did you ever go to those? No, no. I, was that an in-house uh, or Downing thing? In Downing. Trevor yeah. Nunn would have been there, because he was you, there at the same time. He was indeed. Hmm. And we sat on the floor, and he ranted at us. Um, but one knew this was a, a great experience that one would... 50 years later, relayed to you. And um, we, every day we, we got handed round, uh, as we sat on the floor, mugs of tea and biscuits by this incredibly nice elderly woman. Uh, and it was only after about two terms of, of this frightfully nice woman bringing these cups of tea, mugs of tea, uh, that I said to somebody, who is that? And they said, don't you know, that's Queenie, Queenie Lewis, who was the great Jane Austen yeah. critic at turn. The idea that we'd been served yeah. mugs of tea by yeah. Queenie Lewis and hadn't appreciated it for two terms, yeah. I felt incredibly ashamed. Anyway, uh, so that was our, our, our Cambridge years. Um, but Juliet wanted to do uh, Blake this time, and uh, I must say I... I I'd always liked his poems, but I never really studied them. And so um, I'm some of you will know much more about Blake than me. But anyway, here, here we go yes. on the thing. Not, not to, I'm sure we'll cover this as we go along. Is, 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 is he, to some extent, a sort of outsider in the great sort of pantheon, literary pantheon? He is indeed, because he... Because he, he, he's he, an all-rounder, isn't he? He does too many things. He, he does. He's very political. Yeah. And he's a wonderful... Artist oh, and engraver, absolutely. And uh, um, well, you will. You will yeah. I hope you will learn a bit more about him today. Sure. <clears throat> so, um, <clears throat> his Jerusalem, uh, which everybody knows, and if we were, if we feel emboldened towards the end of the evening, we might even <laughs> sing it. Uh, uh, <laughs> we don't get out of the building until we do. <laughs> It's now almost a secular national anthem. I wonder that they, that they, they wouldn't sing it in the World Cup this afternoon. But his poetry is so much more than that. Um, in both his visual art and his, in his poetry, he is the dominant figure, in my view, of the late 18th century. He was a contemporary of Wordsworth and Shelley, but he was not a, a, a romantic in the sense that they were. Um, as a result, he, he's always been rather misunderstood, uh, both as an artist and as a poet. He was born in 1757, the son of a hosier, who 
who sold stockings and gloves, as hosiers do tend to do. Um, he was brought up reading Shakespeare and the King James Bible, but, and they both had a huge effect on his poetry. But he hated rules, and he never went to school. He said, thank God I was never sent to school to be flogged into following the style of a fool. Uh, he also said, there's no use at all in education. It is a great sin. It is eating of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. In effect, he educated himself. He was an autodidact uh, before the word autodidact was ever invented. Um, and he educated himself up to the age of 14. He was then apprenticed by his father to a master engraver called James Bazzieri. Uh, the outstanding element in his childhood was the Bible, especially the Psalms and the book of Isaiah. He was absolutely steeped in both of them. And they run through all his poetry and his paintings for the whole of his life. He remained with Bassieri until he was 21 when he was enrolled in the new Royal Academy, then recently formed, where he fundamentally disagreed with the approach of uh, the first president of the Royal Academy, Joshua Reynolds. Um, if you haven't yet been to the new Royal Academy in its 250th year, I can thoroughly recommend it. It's an absolutely amazing experience. But he, he disliked Joshua Reynolds um, and Reynolds's annual discourses that he gave to, <coughs> um, to all the students. Um, Blake, the artists that Blake admired were Michelangelo, Giulio Romano, Dura, Raphael, he didn't like the things, the historian uh, uh, artists that Reynolds liked. Blake's first poems, poetical sketches, were printed but not published by his friend, the Reverend A.S. Matthew. They owe much more to Spencer and to Shakespeare and to Thomas Percy's ballads uh, or even to uh, Thomas Chatterton and certainly to Michelangelo's sonnets. Um, he was married to a very nice woman called Catherine, um, uh, but he kept him, he, he supported them by engraving books such as Don Quixote. Also, Mary Wollstonecraft's original stories from re real life and Thomas Gray's poems and Erasmus Darwin's bot botanic gardens for a very good publisher called Joseph Johnson, who published almost everybody who was at all political in the late 18th century. At the age of 23, this is all background that perhaps you need to know before we get on to the poems, um, he was involved, he was part of the uh, Gordon riots, um, the mob that burnt down Newgate Prison. And... Uh, it had a lasting effect on him politically. Uh, he wasn't himself prosecuted, um, but he was always a radical and a great friend of Thomas Paine and a strong supporter of both the American and the French revolutions. Those were a really stirring political days, rather unlike uh, 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 the present times. Mm -hmm. um, in 18, 1782, he married Catherine Boucher, 
Um, Catherine was illiterate, but Blake taught her to read and to write and to engrave, and they had a very happy marriage, though they never had any children. Through his friend, the sculptor John Flaxman, he met Mary Wollstonecraft, William Goodwin, Godwin, Henry Fuseli, William Wordsworth, and other key political figures, such as Joseph Priestley. In 1799, at last we get on to his poetry, he wrote and designed a series of plates for his poems, Songs of Innocence. In them, Blake sees himself as a piper, as you will hear from Prue. Piping down the valleys wild, piping songs of pleasant glee, on a cloud I saw a child, and he laughing said to me, Pipe a song about a lamb. So I piped with merry cheer. Piper, pipe that song again. <coughs> so I piped. He wept to hear. And then we go on to the chimney sweep. Please. The chimney sweep. When my mother died, I was very young, and my father sold me, while yet my tongue could scarcely cry, Weep, 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 weep. So your chimneys I sweep, and in soot I sleep. There's little Tom Dacre who cried when his head that curled like a lamb's back was shaved. So I said, hush, Tom, never mind, for when your head's bare, you know that the soot cannot spoil your white hair. And so he was quiet. And that very night, as Tom was asleeping, he had such a sight that thousands of sweepers, Dick, Joe, Ned and Jack, were all of them locked up in coffins of black. And by came an angel who had a bright key, and he opened the coffins and set them all free. Then down a green plain, leaping, laughing, they run, and washing the river and shine in the sun. Then naked and white, all their bags left behind, they rise upon clouds and sport in the wind. And the angel told Tom, if he'd been a good boy, he'd have God for his father and never want joy. And so Tom awoke, and we rose in the dark, and got with our bags and our brushes to work. Though the morning was cold, Tom was happy and warm. So if all do their duty, they need not fear harm. Mm. Well, Things were even worse then, politically, than they are today. <clears throat> In his poem on the French Revolution, Blake celebrated the rise of democracy in France and the fall of the monarchy. From my window I see the old mountains of France like aged men fading away. Blake's friend and publisher, Joseph Johnson, never published the French Revolution. In the same year, booksellers were jailed simply for selling the works of Tom Paine. In The Marriage of Heaven and Hell, Blake satirizes the authority of both church and state. Rintal roars and shakes his fires in the burdened air. Hungry clouds swag on the deep. Once meek and in a perilous path, the just man keeps his course along the vale of death. And then he said, prisons are built with stones of law brothels with bricks of religion. The lust of the goat is the bounty of God. It is the oppressive nature of church and state that has created prisons and brothels. In the summer of 1789, Blake moved out of central London 
across the Thames to a small cottage uh, owned by a man called Sir William Haley in the village of Felpham. He loved the countryside. His friend Thomas Butts relates how he once v visiting the Blakes, they found them in the garden, stark naked, reading Paradise Lost to one another. <laughs> Come in, cried Blake. It's only Adam and Eve, you know. <laughs> the execution of Louis XIV in 1793 led to England declaring war on France. And in his French Revolution, uh, Blake opens it by writing... The dead brood over Europe, the cloud and vision descend over cheerful Europe. O cloud well appointed, sick, sick, the prince on his couch, wreathed in dim and appalling light. So those of you who loved Adrian Mitchell's poems earlier mm -hmm. in the week, uh, the whole tradition of highly political and charged poetry all comes back to, particularly to Blake. <coughs> In Europe, his poem Europe, William Pitt, who led England into the war, is mirrored in the repression from every repression from Christ to the Last Judgment. In the 1790s, Blake responded to his songs of innocence with his songs of experience. Hear the voice of the bard, who present, past and future sees, whose ears have heard the holy word that walked among the ancient trees calling the lapped soul and weeping in the evening dew that might control the starry pole and fallen, fallen, light renew. O earth, O earth, return, arise from out the dewy grass. Night is worn and the morn rises from the slumberous mass. Turn away no more, why wilt thou turn away? The starry floor, the watery shore is given thee till the break of day. Blake answers that with Earth's answer. Earth raised up her head from the darkness dread and drear. Her light fled, stony dread, and her locks covered with grey despair. Prisoned on watery shore, starry jealousy does cleat my den. Cold and hoar, weeping o'er, I hear the father of the ancient men. Selfish father of men, Cruel, jealous, selfish, fear. Can delight, chained in night, the virgins of youth and morning bear? Does spring hide its joy when buds and blossoms grow? Does the sower sow by night, or the plowman in darkness plow? Break this heavy chain that frees my bones around. Selfish bane, eternal bane, that free love with bondage bound. These poems, Songs of Innocence and, and, and Songs of Experience, are only part of the wonder of Blake, I mean, because his illustrations of them, those of you who know them, uh, they bring the whole thing to light. Um, <coughs> in 1794, he designed the plates for Songs of Experience. <coughs> Read with the Songs of Innocence, they show, in Blake's word, the two contrary states of the human soul. So this is the clod and the pebble. Love seeketh not itself to please, nor for itself hath any care, but for another gives its ease, and builds a heaven in hell's despair. So sung a little clod of clay, trodden with the cattle's feet. 
but the pebble of the brook warbled out these meters meet. Love seeketh only self to please and bind another to its delight, joys in another's loss of ease and builds a hell in heaven's despite. And then we have the sick rose. <coughs> o rose, thou art sick. The invisible worm that flies in the night in the howling storm has found out thy bed of crimson joy and his dark secret love doth thy life destroy. Isn't that, um, didn't Benjamin Britten do a setting of? Yes, he wrote a wonderful setting to that. He did, didn't he? Did that happen with any other of Blake's poems that anybody knows of? Yeah. Musical settings? <clears throat> I think he wrote it very much for the voice of Peter Pierce. Yeah, so I don't of know course. If anyone's heard those recordings, but, uh. yeah. but we then come in the Songs of Experience to one of his most famous poems, The Tiger. Tiger, tiger burning bright in the forests of the night. What immortal hand and I or I could frame thy fearful symmetry? In what distant deeps or skies burnt the fire of thine eyes? On what wings dare he aspire? What the hand dare seize the fire? And what shoulder and what art could twist the sinews of thy heart? And when thy heart began to beat, what dread hand and what dread feet? What the hammer, what the chain, in what furnace was thy brain? What the anvil, what dread grasp dare its daily terrors clasp? When the stars, stars threw down their spears and watered heaven with their tears, did he smile his work to see? Did he who made the lamb make thee? Tiger, tiger, burning bright in the forests of the night, what a mortal hand or eye dare frame thy fearful symmetry. Wonderful stuff, mm. isn't it? I mean, uh, um, an amazing musical strength to it as well. It's amazing, it's surprising that more of his, his poetry has not been put to music. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, later in Songs of Experience, he wrote a lovely, rather different, more lyrical poem called The Garden of Love. I went to the Garden of Love and saw what I never had seen. A chapel was built in the midst where I used to play on the green. And the gates of this chapel were shut, and thou shalt not writ over the door. So I turned to the garden of love that so many sweet flowers bore, and I saw it was filled with graves and tombstones where flowers should be, and priests in black gowns were walking their rounds and biding with briars my joys and desires. The next poem is in London, and... It's particularly dear to me because my elder son, who is a songwriter, his very first piece of poetry he ever set to music was this, this poem here when he was only about 14. And he went on to be a very successful uh, pop songwriter with a group called... What's it called? <laughs> <laughs> the long, what success? The Long Pigs. Uh, uh, <laughs> Um, the Long Pigs. The Long Pigs, a Sheffield group in the 60s. They were very good. But he, he started with London. I can remember him writing it upstairs uh, uh, and trying it out lots of different ways. London group. I wander through each chartered street near where the chartered Thames does flow and mark in every face I meet marks of weakness, marks of woe. 
in every cry of every man, in every infant's cry of fear, in every voice, in every ban, the mind, forged, the mind forged manacles I hear. How the chimney sweepers cry, every blackening church appalls, and the hapless soldiers sigh, runs in blood <clears throat> down palace walls. But most through midnight streets I hear how the youthful harlot's curse blasts the newborn infant's tear and blights with plagues the marriage hearse. Great stuff, isn't it? <coughs> we want here, to oh. here is a lovely poem which I particularly chilled okay. by called A Poison Tree. I mm. was angry with my friend. I told my wrath. My wrath did end. I was angry with my foe. I told it not. My wrath did grow. And I watered it in fears, night and morning with my tears, and sinned it with smiles and with soft, deceitful wiles. And it grew both day and night, till it bore an apple bright. And my foe beheld it shine, and he knew that it was mine. And into my garden stole, when the night had veiled the pole. In the morning glad I see, my foe outstretched beneath the tree. Always makes me think of Hamlet, that, that, yeah. that <laughs> The orchard. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Yeah. <coughs> How about a divine image? Divine image. Cruelty has a human heart, and jealousy a human face. Terror, the human form divine, and secrecy, the human dress. The human dress is forged on, the human form a fiery forge. The human face, a furnace sealed. The human heart, its hungry gorge. One of the great love songs, I think. Never seek to tell thy love, love that never can be told, for the gentle wind does move silently, invisibly. I told my love, I told my love, I told her all my heart, trembling, cold, in ghastly fears. Ah, she doth depart. <laughs> Soon as she was gone from me, a traveller came by, silently, invisibly. He took her with a sigh. It's wonderful stuff, isn't it? I mean, it's, I think it's, that's as beautiful as Yeats at his best. And to be able to do both powerful political songs uh, and that delicate love song is an extraordinary thing. I laid me down upon a bank. I laid me down upon a bank where love lay sleeping. I heard among the rushes dank, weeping, weeping. Then I went to the heath and the wild, to the thistles and thorns of the waste, and they told me how they were beguiled, driven out, and compelled <coughs> to be chased. Despite their brilliance, the songs, either of innocence or of experience, never provided Blake with a decent income. The prophetic books and poems were not great sellers either, so he had to depend on his engraving and uh, his occasional commissions from publishers and from friends such as John Flaxman and Thomas Butts. Although Blake was very relaxed about this, in 1799 he wrote to his great friend George Cumberland, I laugh at fortune and go on and on. Some patrons were rather more difficult. Dr. Drod Trusler, a clergyman, bookseller, and sometime author, or deluded himself, he thought he was author, was particularly hard to please, 
finding Blake's fancy to be located in the world of the spirits. Blake replied with characteristic anger. That which can be made explicit to the idiot is not worth my care. <laughs> um, hold on. Um, sorry. Blake also fell out with another major patron, William Haley, his landlord in Felpham. Blake wrote to his brother James, the truth is, as a poet, he, Haley, is frightened at me, and, a, a, and as a painter, his view and mine are opposite. He thinks to turn me into a portrait painter, as he did poor Rumney, but this he nor all the devils in hell will never do. Blake considered him his spiritual enemy. In Feltman, he attracted around him a group of younger artists, known as the Ancients, who included Samuel Parler, Palmer and George Richmond. Palmer particularly revered Blake. He used to kiss the door handle of Blake's lodgings. The prophecies are more difficult, and they're more difficult to read, and they're certainly very difficult to find extracts from um, and to find good quotes. In the prophecies of Urizen in 1793, a re reworking of the Pentateuch, uh, the opening five books of the Bible, um, he tells how the world was created out of chaos. Lo, a shadow of horror is risen in eternity, unknown, unprolific, self-closed, all-repelling. What demon hath formed this abominable void, this shoal-shuddering vacuum? Some said, it is Yorizen, but unknown, abstracted, brooding, secret, the dark power hid. By now, <clears throat> Blake was approaching 70, which in those days was considerably older, I'm glad to say, then as it is now, <laughs> as, I, as I'm well into my 70s and uh, feeling pretty young and chippy. Um, he looked eccentric, in Palmer's words, like an old-fashioned tradesman with his black stockings, breeches and buckles, and a broad-rimmed hat. Blake finally, and rather reluctantly, left Feltham, where he'd written Milton in 1803, and he returned to London. And so, with Milton, which includes the words that we now know as Jerusalem, uh, we return to Jerusalem, which is where we started this afternoon. He worked on it and on the second British poem, the more lyrical and accessible Milton, for 20 years. He used to write and rewrite his poems and uh, a lesson to all of us. Blake wrote Jerusalem in the preface to Milton in 1810 at the time of war where it remained largely unread for a century, until Robert Bridges, the then Poet Laureate, included it in his 1916 anthology, The Spirit of Man. Jerusalem, which you all know. And did those feet in ancient times walk upon England's mountains green? And was the holy Lamb of God on England's pleasant pastures seen? And did the countenance divine shine forth upon our clouded hills? 
And was Jerusalem builded here among those dark satanic mills? Bring me my bow of burning gold. Bring me my arrows of desire. Bring me my spear, O clouds unfold. Bring me my chariot of fire. I will not cease from mental fight, nor shall my sword sleep in my hand till we have built Jerusalem in England's green and pleasant land. Terrific stuff, isn't it? I, mean, mm -hmm. uh, I can only hear those, po th those verses and want to sing, really. Um, <laughs> and Bridges asked Sir Hubert Parry to set it, the great anthem writer of the late 19th century, to set it to music. It was an instant success, especially after Elgar reorchestrated it in 1922. It is a very dense, complicated lyric. Dark satanic mills and England's green and pleasant land. Two sharply contrasting views of England. Um, <clears throat> sentimental and pastoral, industrial and, and material. There are echoes of John and Gaunt's Sceptre Isle. Michael? Can you hear him? Not yet. <laughs> I haven't started yet. <laughs> this other Eden. I've just been sprung up. It's been sprung on me. Let me see. Yeah. This royal throne of kings, this sceptred isle, this earth of majesty, this seat of Mars, this other Eden, damn me paradise, this fortress built by nature for herself against infection and the hand of war, this land of such dear souls, this dear, dear land, dear for her reputation through the world, is now leased out. I die pronouncing it, like to a tenement or a pelting farm, that England that was wont to conquer others hath made a shameful conquest of itself. Oh, would the scandal vanish with my life? How happy then were my ensuing death. Wonderful, Michael. <laughs> Any of you who are lucky enough to hear, to see either of his performances is in King Lear, how many years ago? Three or four years ago? Oh, one was about four years ago, the other was a couple of years ago, yeah, two different productions. Terrific. Or indeed any of his productions with the English Shakespeare Company, which he created, um, will not be surprised by the beauty of that. And it's a, a terrific loss to us. Very well covered by oh, proof <laughs> that, that we have extremely not well covered extremely well and covered. very well devised too because what a picture emerges of Blake I didn't know that nearly so clearly about Blake before um, the sense of the as we said the outsideliness delayed recognition wildly popular among people who knew him but it's odd difficulty in becoming you know a household name all that element of him I feel hugely informed and refreshed by what you said. When you hear Jerusalem, do you want to sing it or would you like to sing it or not? <laughs> yes, you see, yes, of course they would. Yes. Would you? Yes. I would. Well, we I, want to, don't we? I want to. <laughs> um, What's the key? <laughs> you, have to, you have to start. I'll have to start it. Yeah. Um, where should we start? Um, do you want to finish with it? 
Oh, perhaps we're finished with it, yes. Have we finished? <laughs> Not quite yet. Oh, it's okay. To prepare it managed remarkably to give that warm pastoral view of England, then to shock us into anger and shame before rousing us into action, all within four quatrains. Extraordinary, concise, um, moving, of, of, of manipulating you as yeah. the audience. It's little wonder that, do you remember Northrop Fry, who wrote extremely well in the 20th century about poetry? He described Blake's poetry as, in proportion to its merits, the least read yeah. body of poetry in the English language. Yeah. And I must say, I think both of us didn't read him at Cambridge, and I wish we had. Yeah. When it finally came, Blake's death was peaceful. On his last day, lying there, getting increasingly weak, he turned to his wife, who had been a wonderful wife to him throughout his life, and said, stay, Kate, I will draw your portrait, for you have been an angel to me, he said. And he did draw her. It's a wonderful drawing. The moment of death was like a sighing of a gentle breeze. He slipped into another room, but his poetry lives on and so will do so for as long as people love poetry. Thank you. Thank you.